Good morning. Uh, my name is Davis Morgan. I'm the RUF campus minister at Southern Miss, for those who might not know me. Uh, and it's a privilege to once again uh, be a frequent flyer here in the pulpit at First Perez. So let me invite you to turn to the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 2, which is on page 1014 of your pew Bible. <clears throat> We're going to read the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. <clears throat> Almighty God, this is your word. It's without error in any part, and it's written for your glory and our good. And we so often forget that. And we so often show up to open your word as if nothing spectacular is happening. Lord, help us to remember once again that you've spoken to us in this word. 
And that we actually are built to live off your word. That we're not designed, we're not made to live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. Heavenly Father, through your Holy Spirit, give us an appetite this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Excuse me. Have you ever underestimated the power of something or someone that you're dealing with? I'm sure you have. We all have at some point. Uh, I think of every time that I go to make oatmeal or ramen noodles in the microwave and I underestimate just how much of a mess that's going to make. Some of us might have realized a few weeks ago uh, in the college football championship that we had all underestimated just how good the Georgia Bulldogs were. Or uh, in 1945, this is a more somber illustration, uh, when the Manhattan Project set off the first nuclear explosion, the scientists were chilled to the bone when they realized how wildly they had underestimated the power of a nuclear explosion. It set off in Los, outside Los Alamos, New Mexico, the equivalent of 21,000 tons of TNT explosive, over four times what even the most optimistic engineers had predicted. This was something more wildly powerful than expected. Friends, I think when we come to this passage, we encounter something like that. Thankfully, something beautiful and wonderful and not destructive like a nuclear bomb, but something that we have underestimated. You see, so often we come to the gospel and we privatize, we individualize, we commodify what Jesus has accomplished. And we might write it off and say, well, what Jesus brings is inner peace. What Jesus brings is forgiveness of my sins and easing of my conscience. What Jesus brings is the assurance that I'm not going to go to hell. Which is good news. All of that is good news. We might say that Jesus comes and he gives me a grid to live by. He he gives me a map for moral reformation. But what we actually encounter in the book of 1 Peter, and specifically in this passage, is that Jesus comes and he does something even more powerful than we could imagine. Jesus comes and, amongst other things, brings a new humanity. What's inaugurated through Jesus' resurrection power is nothing less than a new humanity. And so when we come to Jesus and when we receive the gospel, when we're uh, united to him, we're brought into this new humanity. And in this passage, we're receiving instructions on living as a part of this new humanity, individually and corporately, both inside the church and outside the church. So I just want to look at three things this morning briefly, three things that mark this new humanity. And I'll I'll give them to you real quick so that, you know, if you need to slip out, you've got it. First is new humanity is marked by new cravings. New cravings. Secondly, by a new culture. A new culture. And lastly, by new conduct. New 
conduct. New cravings, new culture, new conduct. And yes, I worked very hard on the alliteration so that you can remember. New, okay, new cravings. This new humanity is marked by new cravings. We're going to look at the, the first three verses here. The passage opens up, friends, with this very strange comparison. You know, so often we roll past the words of Scripture and we don't really let them jar us. We don't really lean into the oddness of what the apostle is saying. Verse 1, on the one hand, you have malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, slander. Uh, all, we, we might say, sort of under the umbrella of sinful ways of relating to one another. So you have that. And then on the other hand, you have milk. Right? Put away these things, and instead, and it's not even <clears throat> go put these things away and do these things instead. It's put away malice and envy and slander and hypocrisy and crave milk. What a weird, what a strange comparison. What, what is Peter saying? Friends, I think what Peter is saying is something that is wildly contemporary, wildly relevant for us. I think what Peter is saying is these things in verse 1, malice, envy, slander, hypocrisy, envy, that somehow we are doing with them what an infant does with milk. Did you catch that? We are doing with malice and slander and envy and hypocrisy what infants do with milk, which is what? They survive with it. Right? We're, you, an infant, that's all the infant eats. That's all they consume is milk. They, they only ever only consume that one nutrition. And without that, they cannot survive. It is the only thing that will fill the emptiness and the longing in their little tummies. I think what Peter is saying, which is something that I think easily a 21st century psychotherapist or some TikTok psychologist would be saying, is, is it possible that with these things, with this malice, with your anger, with your meanness, with your harmful words, with your sinful heart attitudes, could it be that these things exist in your life and in my life because we're starving? Because in our inner being we have a depth of emptiness and longing and hunger It's an incredibly contemporary idea. Friends, I think that's exactly what Peter is saying. That these things are a style of navigating a world where we're hungry and where we're empty. And so the question is, when I'm appropriating those things, when when malice and envy and slander and uh, hypocrisy, when that is how I am navigating the world, do you feel full? Is it, how's that going? How's it working out? And you, we, we know this, don't we? No. 
It might feel good in the moment because anger and malice feel like control. But when that adrenaline wears off, right, you feel all the more empty and starving and hungry and scared and sad and cold. Don't you know that in your own life? That, that when, when I vent my frustration, when I, when I say that thing that I've been holding in and think it's going to make me feel better, when, when, when I indulge bitterness, on the other end, I'm just as hungry as I ever was. And Peter is saying this, try this instead. Try this milk. What's the milk? The, the milk, friends, it's, it's the gospel. It's God's grace to us in Jesus. It's good news. It's good news for your hunger. It's actually the milk that you were meant to be nurtured with. It's the only nutrition that will satisfy. The only thing that will fill up your emptiness. Because here's what it means. Is it means that in all of his fullness... Jesus took your emptiness to give you his fullness. That's good news. But it's a special kind of good news, isn't it? It's good news that says, now you have to become a baby. Now you have to become an infant. And you have to learn to crave new things. You have to learn to feed yourself with this gospel and stop feeding yourself the poison that you've been ingesting. And what Peter is saying, I think, friends, is that every moment as we move out into our world, we're faced with a choice of palates that we can indulge. That, that on the one hand, there's the palate of the kingdom of me, the kingdom of my desires, the kingdom of my ego, the kingdom of my hurt feelings. And then there's the kingdom of Jesus. And he's saying, I want you to learn to crave that, to long for it, the way a baby craves milk. It's hard to learn new cravings, isn't it? We all know it, it's January. Right? It's the time of year that we're all trying to learn to crave new things. We all set those New Year's resolutions. And um, I hate salmon. I don't know about you. I know some of you, some of you love salmon. Back up. Um, I know it's exquisite. It's expensive for some reason. I I've never met a salmon I liked. Um, some of you know me and and know that this is actually something I've been working on been trying to force myself to eat salmon because, um, you know, I, I think that if I'm going to live to see my kids graduate college, uh, if I'm going to live to see my kids get married and, and all those good things, the road to those things is probably paved with salmon. <laughs> because unfortunately, it's really good for you. Um, so I have to learn to crave this new thing that actually, to me, tastes like pond water. How, how do you learn to crave something new? You have to taste it again and again and again and again. And you may hate it for the first who knows how many thousand times. 
Look, friends, if this gospel is what you are meant to live on, make no mistake, Peter is talking about the context of the corporate Christianity, of of the body of Christ, the church. You may be here in this building and you may hate it. Let me just encourage you. Keep coming. Keep coming and even pray that next week you would hate it a little less and a little less after that. Right? I, I may never crave salmon the way I crave Ward's chili dogs or, or French toast at the Midtown or, or a Waffle House all-star breakfast. But I know that you can begin to crave the gospel. You know why I know that? Because of verse 3. If you have tasted that the Lord is good. And we know that he is. You can't beat flavor. You can't beat goodness. It's what the Puritans called the expulsive power of a new affection. If you've tasted that King Jesus, that his gospel is good. And actually that phrase... uh, if you've tasted the Lord is good. It's actually a tricky uh, phrase to render into English. You know how else you could render it? Very faithful. I mean, e- every word in that sentence is sort of like, there's several variables. Let me, let me tell you how one other way you could render it. Now that you have experienced that the Lord is gentle. Now that you've experienced that the Lord is gentle, that he's pleasant, that he's kind. You see, the thing about the list in verse 1, the malice and envy and slander, is it's never gentle. It's never gentle with you, and you live by the sword and you die by the sword, right? Peter's inviting you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Crave that gentleness. So, New cravings. Now, secondly, a new culture. This new humanity doesn't just come with new cravings. It brings a new culture. Let's ask this question. What happens to a group of people like us when people together start craving the milk, start craving the gospel, start craving the kingdom of Jesus and losing their taste for the kingdom of me? What happens when a group together stops trying to fill ourselves up by lashing out? What happens is we get like Jesus. We get like Jesus. We take on a culture of Christ-likeness and we we start to care like Jesus. We start to care more about what God says about us than what the world does. Look back again at verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You see the incongruity of the world's values and God's values. You yourselves, verse 5, like living stones, meaning like him, are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, we take on the culture of Christ, we're conformed to his image. His story begins to define our story and the way we move out into the world and the things that we call good. And in this new culture, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to be quick here. We, we get the answer to two 
deep existential questions that every culture is trying to answer and that every human, from the moment they first cry in the doctor's office, needs answered. First question is this, is do I matter? The second is like it, do I belong? Do I matter and do I belong? Those aren't the only deep existential questions, but they're two pretty big deep ones. So do I matter? We all need this question answer. And we sort of uh, alluded to it already, that the list in verse 1, the malice, the slander, the envy, the hypocrisy, all these things, so often what they are an expression of in our lives is feeling like we don't matter. Right? That's why if you, if you hurt me, if you make me feel like I'm not important, like I don't matter, I'm going to lash out in malice. And if I'm scared that you matter more than me, I'm going to become envious and bitter and resentful. And if, if I want to matter to you and I'm scared that I don't, I'm going to be tempted to deceit and hypocrisy to gain your approval. Right? Isn't that why? We're tempted to, to live these two-faced lives just so that we can curry people's favor? Isn't that why we're tempted to, to just want to, to, to wail on someone who does the slightest bit of offense to us? Isn't that why we're all scared? Because I want to matter. I, I, I want importance. I want significance. I want honor. But God comes to us in this passage and says, those things are not the way you gain significance. The way that you gain honor and significance in God's house is not by clawing your way to the top. It's by believing in the cornerstone. It's by leaning into Jesus. Look at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. You see, when we trust him, we become like him. And he's precious in God's sight, and therefore so am I, because I'm united to him. Look back at verse 6. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, to quote from the book of Isaiah, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's really the crux of the matter. Right, the monster that we're all really running away from, the monster we're all scared of, is shame. You might remember this. Jerry Seinfeld had a hilarious stand-up bit uh, about how most people fear public speaking more than they fear death. And so logically, in, in the Seinfeld bit, if you're at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. But, but it makes sense, doesn't it? Because... If you're the one public speaking, you could be rejected. You could be booed. You could make a fool of yourself. And we all would rather be dead than ashamed. We all would rather die than feel ashamed. We can't stand shame. But the funny thing is, again, these devices to deal with it, this malice, this envy... This anger, this bitterness, they don't fix the problem. They just dig the hole deeper, don't they? 
Jesus says, if you believe in me, you'll never be put to shame. So verse 7, again, the honor is for you. The honor is for you who believe. Jesus takes your shame, all your feeling of unworthiness, of being unacceptable, of not being up to par. He takes all of that and he gives you his honor. The honor is for you who believe. Can you imagine a more cosmically powerful answer to the question, do I matter, than to have the God of the universe say, the honor is for you. So do I, do I matter? But now also, do I belong? Every single one of us is asking the question, do I belong? From the moment we come into the world, that's why babies long to be held. Because they want to have that security. That's why, actually, I believe uh, uh, disaster movies and monster movies and horror movies work because we're all terribly afraid that the universe really doesn't care and that we're a lonely atom floating around an indifferent cosmos. And if Godzilla destroys Tokyo or if an asteroid crashes into Texas, the universe doesn't lose any sleep. Now, you may not worry a lot about asteroids or Godzilla, but I bet you worry about where you fit in. Maybe in this church body. Maybe in your family. Maybe in your marriage. Could be that the closest relationships are the loneliest ones for you. Maybe in your workplace. Maybe at school. Do I belong? Now look at verse 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's treasured possession. Look, this is why, and you may have heard me say this before, this is why that wonderful theological work, The Princess Diaries, is so powerful. Because what if you're not just Mia Thermopolis, the gawky teenager who doesn't seem to fit in? What if you're Princess Mia Thermopolis? Look, God steps into our questioning of do I belong that drives so much of our destructive behaviors because I want to fit in and I want to be part of something. And he says, You are part of my new humanity, my treasured possession. It's a new culture. Lastly, there's also new conduct. This new humanity comes with a new conduct. And the transition from verses 9 and 10 to verse 11, you have this amazing contrast. 9 and 10, the church is a chosen race, it's a royal priesthood, it's a treasured possession. But then verse 11, sojourners and exiles. You see, that's really the thing that Peter wants you to understand about your status as a Christian in the world. 
It's, it's what he addresses the, the church as in the very first verse of this book, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, when he addresses the believers as elect exiles. Elect exiles, royal sojourners. That's what you are. That's what you are. And it's in that context that he says, put away your worldly passions. Now, understand this. This is so important. The Bible does not say, go obey so that you can be a chosen race. It does not say, go act like a Christian so that you can be saved. It never says that. It says, you are my treasured possession. Now act like it. It says actually that these worldly passions are making war against your soul, against your inner being, meaning at your core, at at the most fundamental part of you. That's not who you are. You are a royal priesthood. So when God says to his people, be holy as I am holy, he's not saying, go become holy. He's saying, you are. I've already made you holy. Now, be what you are. That's radically different from the way that the world approaches this issue. And then lastly, one other thing I want you to notice in verse 12 This is a really astounding thing that Peter says. He's telling the church, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable and pure. Right, And and presumably these are, by Gentiles, he means those who are mistreating you, those who are persecuting you. This is a church that is enduring a fiery trial. He means those who would call you enemies. Peter says... Keep your conduct honorable amongst them so that they may see your good deeds and they may glorify God. That's astounding. Peter is saying that as you obey Jesus in the midst of suffering and mistreatment, your goal is that your enemies might become worshipers of Jesus. That's what this new humanity is like. That's what this new, new humanity is like. It's, if, if you look up at verses 5 and 9, you'll see that, that these living stones that are being built up into this house on the cornerstone of Jesus, it's a priestly house. You're a royal priesthood. What do priests do? Well, amongst other things, they intercede before God for sinners. In other words, what Peter is calling us to is nothing less than interceding for the very people who are rejecting us. You are called to intercede for the very people who are rejecting you. Here's why is because that's what Jesus does. That's what it means to be a Christian 
is to be a little Christ, which means you become a little priest. A royal priest. With Jesus' own words in your mouth, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. This is a book that lays it out plainly that in this world you will have trouble. And that the reason the world does not know us is because it didn't know Jesus. This is a book that invites us into participating in the sufferings of Jesus. Which means this, friends, that your sanctification, your obedience to Jesus, your endeavor to become more like him is to the goal of winning those who would curse Jesus and curse you. That's what it means to be part of this new humanity, and it's something that only happens by the mercy and grace of Jesus. It's something only his spirit can do. It's a new humanity. It is what C.S. Lewis said. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better, but giving a horse wings so that he can fly like a pegasus. That's the new humanity. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we pray that you would make this new humanity true of us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.